Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, college professor, PhD student, and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. It's the story of two college students, 19-year-olds Dominique Hurd and Peter Robertson, who were attending the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff in 1998. After having dinner at a restaurant one night, the two students were in the parking lot taking pictures and laughing, just hanging out and enjoying each other's company, when a stranger approached them from seemingly out of nowhere, held them at gunpoint, and forced them to drive to a discreet rural area. Once there, the gunman taunted the students for a while before ultimately pumping bullets into both of them and leaving them both for dead. This episode is titled A Deadly Carjacking dot, 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 and some other murders. (laughs) You'll see why I titled it that soon enough, I promise. So without further ado, let's get started. Dominique, who mostly went by Nikki most of her life, was originally from Fort Worth, Texas, but she was recruited to go to UAPB by the cheerleading coach Karen Bradley Blunt. UAPB, the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, is a historically Black college and university located in the town of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which has a population of about 43,000 people. According to Fox 16 in Little Rock, Nikki and Karen met in the summer of 1997 and they had an instant connection. So Nikki packed her bags and headed off to college in Arkansas. Upon arriving, Nikki and her coach became even closer because Nikki lived with Karen and her husband for a short while before the semester got started. At the time, Karen didn't have any children, so she just naturally took Nikki in under her wing and treated her as if she were her own daughter. In an interview with Fox 16 in Little Rock, Karen said Nikki was, quote, very, very smart, intelligent, and full of life. Her soul was beautiful, end quote. In an episode of Investigation Discovery's Dead Silent, Karen described Nikki as having a smile that could light up any room. Nikki's father, Ricardo Hurd, said she was just easy to talk to. She never met a stranger, and she was overall a very positive, happy person. Her dad said one thing about her is that she was kind and never said anything bad about anyone. She always had confidence in people and always saw the good in others, to the point that sometimes he even had to warn her that, hey, Nikki, not everyone always has your best interest at heart. While in college, being the attractive, happy person she was, it was natural that others would be drawn to Nikki and gravitate toward her. She also had a lot of attention from guys, and several were lined up to try to get her number and take her out. Nikki, though, was reserved, genuine. She wanted to focus on school and cheering, so she didn't really pay any attention to the guys who swooned over her. 
One guy, a basketball player at UAPB, had asked her out more than once, but each time Nikki politely turned him down. She said she needed to study and concentrate on school because she was also a pre-med major and she had her heart set on being a doctor. Nikki also stayed busy with extracurricular activities on campus. In addition to being a cheerleader, she was also part of student government and she decided randomly that she also wanted to join the school choir. At first, Karen, her cheer coach, worried that it might be a bit too much for Nikki, but Nikki was persistent and she wanted to experience all that she could while in college. And at the end of the day, Nikki was a responsible student who could easily juggle a busy schedule. Ricardo Hurd said Nikki embraced choir with complete dedication. He said, quote, if it was there, Nikki wanted to do it. She'd go out and put her best foot forward on just about everything, end quote. It was in choir that Nikki met Peter Robertson, a student originally from New Jersey, but he had family in Pine Bluff and that brought him all the way to Arkansas to attend college. Both Peter and Nikki were good, honest students and had similar interests and personalities, so they clicked right away. After practice one evening, Peter conjured up the guts to ask her out to dinner and Nikki, without hesitation, accepted. Of course she would go. But the dinner date wouldn't be for a couple of weeks. They wanted to wait until after their big Christmas choir performance later on in December and then just go eat after their performance. A few days later, Nikki and Karen were doing some holiday shopping and, you know, engaging in some girl talk and all that jazz. Karen and Nikki were talking about Karen's husband's birthday party that weekend, and Karen asked Nikki if she was going to attend. Nikki said, of course, but she would have to stop by after she had dinner with her new friend, Peter, which would be the same day as Karen's husband's birthday. As they were loading up in the car after shopping, Karen received a call from a family member. They told her that her cousin, Sharon, had been carjacked and kidnapped. Because Nikki was close to Karen's entire family, Nikki knew Sharon too, and naturally, both Nikki and Karen were incredibly concerned for Sharon and immediately asked if she was okay. She was shaken up, but the carjacker luckily spared her life. On an episode of Dead Silent, Sharon recalled that she was finishing up some Christmas shopping of her own, about to get inside her car, when a man came up to her from behind. He put one of his hands over her mouth and put a gun to her head with his other hand. He told her, quote, I want all your money. Do what I ask you to do, end quote. Somehow, Sharon just did exactly what he asked and got inside her car on the driver's side as the gunman slipped into the passenger seat. He told her to drive, so she did. Finally, he told her to pull off into a parking lot, and at that point, he instructed Sharon to get out of the car, and when she did, he sped off with her car. Sharon, of course, filed a police report, but they never found her attacker, at least not until he struck again. After finding out this information, Karen, devastated about what had happened to her cousin that day, gave Nikki the protective mother speech and expressed to her that this was why she always told Nikki to be very, very careful. And she made Nikki promise her that she would indeed be careful. About a week later, when the day finally did arrive for Nikki and Peter's dinner, the same carjacker struck again. This time, though, it was Nikki and Peter who would endure the nightmare. And this time, they wouldn't get as lucky as Sharon. After coming out of the restaurant, Nikki and Peter hung out in the parking lot. They were laughing and taking pictures with Nikki's disposable Kodak camera that 
you know, those cameras that were so popular back in the 90s. Seriously, my whole senior trip was documented on like three of those things. But they took one final picture of the two of them together, a selfie before it was actually called a selfie, when a random stranger approached them and said, yeah, I like that one, talking about the picture they just took together. Then he offered to take a picture of the two of them for them. Peter was suspicious at first, but he thought, well, if we engage with him and let him take our picture, maybe this creepy stranger will just go away. And he did, at least for a minute. But before they could even realize what was happening, the guy came back, this time with a gun exposed, and he told both Nikki and Peter to get in the car. At this point, the gunman forced Peter to drive to an ATM so the students could give them all they had. According to the episode of Dead Silent, Nikki couldn't remember her PIN number, but Peter was able to remember his, so he proceeded to empty his bank account, which was a whopping $70. I mean, for a college kid, that's a good chunk of change, especially in 1998. After this, Peter told the guy, quote, you've got our money, just let us go, end quote. But the guy replied, quote, afraid I can't do that, end quote. Nikki, scared out of her mind and sobbing, tried to reason with the guy. Let us go home, she said. We won't tell anyone, I swear. But nothing seemed to change this guy's mind. The guy forced Peter to drive them to a remote rural area outside of the city limits. They ended up about 12 miles from campus west of Pine Bluff, which is a heavily wooded and foresty area. I'm pretty sure I just made up that word foresty too. But he made Peter park the car on the side of the road and then instructed both of them to walk toward the woods and brush, holding them at gunpoint the entire time. I don't know what the hell this guy's problem was besides he was a fucktard of all fucktards, but he began taunting them and humiliating them, basically just because he could to show he was in control. He took Nikki's purse, pulled out her camera, and then began to snap pictures of them while he made them kneel down on their knees. Peter desperately tried to take control, but these students, both Nikki and Peter, were not street smart, as the lead detective said on Dead Silent. He also said they were just good kids, and the suspect, the douchebag of a human, okay, he didn't say that, I said that, <laughs> but he was basically able to get Nikki and Peter to do what he wanted them to by his mere presence. Well, and the fact that he was waving a gun in front of their faces probably had a lot to do with it too. At one point, he even told Peter to pull up Nikki's dress as he snapped photos. Peter was so incredibly scared and humiliated and just didn't know what to do that he just decided to do what the guy said and pray it would be over soon. Then, suddenly, the guy made Peter give him his keys and he made Nikki close her eyes as he stood behind her. Then, he actually let them go. Well, he was the one who actually left in Peter's car, but he had spared their lives. The gunman said, quote, If any one of you run to the cops about this, wherever you are at, you're dead. Wherever you're at, I'll find you. End quote. After he left, Peter and Nikki were finally able to breathe a sigh of relief. Peter heard the car door shut and the car drive off. So immediately, Peter told Nikki, we need to go. And they headed toward the main road, praying a car would come by and the person or persons inside would be kind enough to help them. And before long, they did see headlights coming back down the road and they began waving the car down in desperation for help. But 
Just like a scene straight out of a horror movie, they soon realized it wasn't a stranger. It was him, the stranger. He was coming back for them. In a knee-jerk reaction, they took off running, but the dude caught up to them. He told them, quote, y'all really thought you was going to get away from me that easy, huh? End quote. Peter finally asked him, what do you want from us, dude? And the guy just started talking to them, asking them questions. He asked them where they were from, and Peter said New Jersey, and Nikki told him Fort Worth. The guy looked at Nikki and said, quote, Fort Worth, that's near Dallas, right? Thing is, I hate people from Dallas, end quote. And at that moment, he began firing his gun, pumping bullets into both Nikki and Peter, and he kept pulling the trigger until he was out of ammunition. Nikki had been shot in the head, her right knee, and the side of her body. Peter had been shot twice in the stomach. The gunman took off, assuming he was leaving both of the victims lifeless on the side of the road. But guess what? Peter was alive, and he was able to somehow pick himself up and crawl toward the main road. But this time, it was nearly daylight, and a couple of locals spotted Peter and pulled over to help him. Emergency personnel responded pretty quickly and took both Peter and Nikki to the hospital. Peter was in serious but stable condition, but Nikki succumbed to her injuries. She was actually still alive, but she wasn't breathing on her own. She was on life support, and her parents had to make that terrible decision that no parent should ever have to make. Nikki had no activity in her brain. It was the machines keeping her alive, and Nikki's mother and father couldn't bear keeping her in a state like that. They just couldn't put her through that. So they made the hardest decision of their lives to take their daughter, their one and only child, off life support. So now, police no longer had a carjacker and attempted murderer on their hands. They had a legit, full-fledged murderer, and they didn't waste any time getting to work to find this guy. The thing is, though, there was no physical evidence left at the scene to tie it back to any suspect. They had no idea who this guy was. But thanks to Peter, who gave an incredibly detailed description, they were able to come up with a composite sketch of the suspect. And it didn't take them long before they got a huge break in the case. The car that the guy stole, not Sharon's, but Peter's, well, that car ended up on fire in a drainage ditch near another local college. So they knew the dude must be nearby. They soon realized the blazing car was about three blocks away from an apartment complex. So they started there knocking on doors and asking questions. As luck would come to have it, one lady in the complex hinted at a guy who also lived in the complex. She said his name was Kenny, and basically, she started airing out all his dirty laundry to the police. It sounds like Kenny was just a crappy neighbor, to say the least, which this lady let police know. And as she was pointing out to police exactly where this guy lived, she told police to tell Kenny to stop leaving his clothes in the dryer all day. Well, lady, I think this guy is about to have much bigger fish to fry than his raggedy old clothes. <laughs> anyway, police began digging deeper into this guy and discovered his name was actually Kenneth Williams, a 20-year-old man with a rap sheet. Williams, however, wasn't the only person who lived in his apartment. He also had a roommate, and that roommate let the police in and gave them consent to search while Kenny was at home. Inside, police found their smoking gun. They found a stolen wallet with an insurance card, and guess whose name was on that card? Sharon's. 
So they showed a photo of Williams to Sharon and she positively identified him saying, yes, that was indeed the guy who carjacked and kidnapped her. Sharon said, quote, seeing Kenneth Williams, I was devastated. It was the same person that robbed me and then he killed Nikki. I was really upset about it. I really was, end quote. Regardless, this was enough to issue an arrest warrant for Williams, and a week later, he was taken into custody without incident. It was then that law enforcement took a new, fresh photo of old Williams, and they took that photo back to Peter at the hospital. They needed Peter to identify the guy, too, so they could also charge him with the other terrible things he did, like, you know, killing somebody. As soon as they showed Peter the photo, of course he was able to verify without a doubt that they had their guy. But... When Peter first saw it, it visibly shook him up. The picture made him relive his nightmare all over again. And as soon as he glimpsed at it, he immediately began crying and saying, take it away, take it away. Regardless, Peter made a full recovery and was able to walk police through every single minute of the incident. I'll spare you the details of the court case because Williams was obviously 100% guilty and he was 100% sentenced to life in prison without parole. On September 15, 1999, Williams was convicted of murder, kidnapping, and assault. He didn't get the death penalty, though, at least not yet, for whatever reason, which I thought was kind of a bummer, because listen to this. After the jury announced the verdict and the judge handed down Kenneth's sentence, this asshole looked at Nikki's family, taunted them, and said, quote, You thought I was going to die, didn't you? End quote. Is your blood boiling yet? Okay, so normally, this is where the story would come to an end. But wait, there's more. No, it doesn't really have anything to do with Nikki or Peter, but it does have everything to do with Kenneth Williams. And I promise you, if I didn't share this next part of the story with you, you'd be disappointed. So buckle up, kids. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Three weeks into his life sentence for murdering Nikki, attempting to murder Peter, and carjacking and kidnapping Sharon, Williams planned his escape from prison and succeeded. On October 3rd, 1999, Williams climbed onto the back of a garbage truck carrying hogslop, got inside the 500-gallon barrel with the hogslop in it, and hid there until the truck left the prison. I mean, I can maybe take a gander at what hogslop is, but... I wasn't quite sure exactly what classified as hog slop, so I kept researching and finally found out exactly what it is. CBS News reported that the hog slop was actually a mishmash of kitchen scraps. That's a word tongue twister for you. Either way, it sounds nasty AF, and this weirdo decided to hide in it for God knows how long before he eventually jumped off the truck. Then, he sneaked along a tree line and came upon a home owned by 57-year-old Cecil Boren. Boren just happened to be a retired warden at the Cummins unit, the prison where Williams escaped from. At the time, the Associated Press reported that Boren's house sat on a farm about six miles away from the prison, and it just happened to be a crime of opportunity for Williams. Police do not believe Boren was actually targeted because of his previous employment at the prison. But once there, police believe Williams surprised Boren inside his home, overpowered Boren, and then shot him with his own gun, with Boren's own gun. According to an article in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, Williams shot Boren once in the chest and then six more times in the back before dragging his body behind the house. Williams then proceeded to steal several more of Boren's guns, 
a suit Boren had worn to a funeral two days earlier, two of Boren's rings, and his Ford F-150 pickup truck to hightail it out of there. Remember, Williams was in Arkansas. Well, he drove all the way to Missouri. THV 11 in Little Rock reported that once in Missouri, this dude led police on a high-speed chase before he slammed the pickup he was driving into a water delivery truck. The impact instantly killed the driver of the truck, 24-year-old Michael Greenwood. But guess who survived the crash? Somehow, unfortunately, Williams made it out alive and was thrown right back into prison where he belonged. The next year, in the year 2000, when Williams was 21 years old, he was convicted of Boren's death and sentenced to execution, according to CNN. I couldn't find anything on why they didn't charge him at the time for the death of Michael Greenwood as well, and maybe they did, but it just didn't get reported on, but I don't know, I couldn't really find anything. It might be because it was in a different state, you know, in Missouri and not Arkansas, but again, I'm not really sure. I guess I'm just confused because I felt like something more should have been done if it wasn't. I mean, I guess Williams definitely got what he deserved because he's on death row or he was on death row. But according to the reporting of Mark Berman for the Washington Post, Michael Greenwood had a five-year-old daughter at home and his wife, Stacy, was also pregnant with twins at the time. Williams literally caused a widow to be left behind as well as three children without their father. But... Continuing with our story, when Ricardo Heard, Nikki's father, found out about Williams' escape and his other heinous crimes, he said, quote, I was angry. He has no remorse. I don't even consider him a person. There's nothing there. He's just cold, end quote. Now, again, you might think, okay, this guy was convicted of another murder and sentenced to death, so how much more of the story could be left? Well, hold on, because there is still more. Apparently, while on death row, Williams found God, and by found God, I mean like speaking in tongues and becoming an ordained minister. The Arkansas Democrat Gazette reported that Williams converted to Christianity at the age of 26, five years after being sentenced to death row. After this, he not only became a death row minister to help others on death row, but he also became a death row writer and apparently published a book and also developed board games to educate kids about the dangers of gangs, drugs, and bullying. Apparently, the games he developed even came equipped with Q&A cards that basically taught the dangers of leading a criminal life to at-risk youth. But I think Jeannie Boren, Cecil Boren's 73-year-old widow, said it best when she told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, quote, he still needs to be punished for what he's done to all those people. I hope he has converted to Christianity. He should be ready to meet his maker, end quote. Oh, and I feel like now is a good time to tell you that while sitting on death row, Williams wrote a letter to the Pine Bluff commercial, a newspaper in Pine Bluff, admitting that he killed another person the night that he killed Nikki. He confessed to killing 36-year-old Pine Bluff resident Jarrell Jenkins. So this guy had officially killed Nikki, then apparently went on and killed Jenkins. Then during his escape, he killed Cecil Boren and Michael Greenwood. That's four murders this guy was officially responsible for. When Williams' execution day did finally come on April 27th, 2017, he was 38 years old and there was all sorts of controversy surrounding it. You see, the Arkansas governor, Asa Hutchinson's, had scheduled eight different lethal injections, including Williams's, 
in an 11-day period of time. According to an article in the Los Angeles Times, this was the most executions in such a short, compressed time frame since the U.S. Supreme Court actually reinstated the death penalty in 1976. So why did the governor schedule this many lethal injections? It's because one of the drugs used to administer the injections, bear with me as I pronounce this, (laughs) midazolam, midazolam, that's what it's called, That drug was scheduled to expire at the end of the month on April 30th, 2017. So the governor wanted to use as much of it as he could before it officially expired. The Arkansas Democrat Gazette reported that the governor's decision sparked controversy nationwide and people began publicly criticizing Arkansas's decision. It even got the attention of actor Johnny Depp and activist sister Helen Prejean. USA Today even published a headline that called it, quote, a parade of executions, end quote. So back to the scheduled executions, the state only actually carried out four of the eight because state and federal judges spared half of them and granted them more time. CNN reported that one of the four who was not spared was convicted murderer Liddell Lee on April 20th. Lee's execution was the first one in the state of Arkansas in 12 years. Then, on April 24th, two other murderers, Jack Jones and Marcel Williams, were both lethally injected in a double execution, which was something that had not been done since the year 2000. And finally, on April 27th, 2017, Williams was the fourth person in eight days who was executed with the drug midazolam. In a 2017 article in the New York Times by Alan Blinder, Midazolam is a powerful sedative originally invented to make people's lives easier, not take their lives. Apparently, it was initially intended to be used for stuff like colonoscopies and heart caths, but it eventually became a popular drug used in executions around the country. However, due to controversy surrounding the drug, with critics claiming it causes botched executions, the Arkansas governor knew that they would likely face major hurdles in trying to restock the drug after it expired, so he wanted to get as many executions done as possible while the drug was still in stock. According to the New York Times, midazolam is often used as the first drug in a series of drugs administered in death row executions. It is supposed to render prisoners unconscious and then keep them in a sedated state, which is also supposed to keep them from experiencing any pain later on in the execution when the other series of drugs are administered to stop their breathing and their heart. On the day of Williams's execution, CNN reported that 31 witnesses gathered in the chamber's viewing room to watch Williams be put to death. Among those people included Jeannie Boren, Cecil Boren's widow, their two daughters, Jody Efford and Holly King, and three select media reporters. In a Washington Post article, Jeannie Boren said, quote, My girls and I decided that we should do that, that we should attend. This has been going on 17 years. We'd like for it to happen before all of us die ourselves, end quote. However, someone who was not present at the execution that day was Kayla Greenwood, the daughter of Michael Greenwood, whom, you know, Williams killed when he crashed his F-150 or the F-150 he was driving into the water delivery truck that Michael was driving. Kayla, who was five at the time of her dad's death, but now was 22, apparently has a heart of gold and there is a special place in heaven just for her because she actually wanted Williams's life to be spared. She said, quote, I never wanted him to be put to death, ever. 
Nobody in my family disagrees, not one person, end quote. In the midst of all of this, Kayla Greenwood discovered that Williams has a daughter, Jasmine, and Jasmine has a daughter of her own. Therefore, Williams had a granddaughter whom he had never met, and when Kayla found that out, she said her heart just broke. She, too, has two young boys who never got a chance to meet their grandfather because of what Williams did, but Kayla said she didn't want the same for Williams's granddaughter. What kind of a person? Like, to me, she's just, she must be a really amazing person. So you're never going to believe what she did. Well, she found out that Jasmine had been trying to raise money so she could fly from her home near Seattle to Arkansas to see her father one last time and allow her daughter to meet her grandfather at least once in her lifetime. When Kayla Greenwood discovered this, she paid for plane tickets for Jasmine and her daughter so they could have a final meeting with Williams the day before his execution. Though Kayla and her family did drive the 200 miles from Springfield, Missouri to Little Rock, Arkansas to meet up with Jasmine and her daughter, Kayla Greenwood and her family did not attend Williams's execution and neither did Jasmine. Now, some people think Williams's execution could be considered one of the botched ones, but I want to give you the details and let you decide for yourself. However, fair warning, this part is a little bit more morbid to say the least. So bear with me as I take you through the details. And if that is not something you think you can handle, I completely understand. And I just recommend skipping ahead a minute or so to hear the ending of the story, but not actually the details. But I do promise to be as mild and vague in explaining the details as possible. So it doesn't give you, you know, nightmares at the end of the night when you go to sleep. So just minutes before his execution, an apology that Williams had prepared in advance was read aloud. NBC News reported that part of that statement read, quote, I was more than wrong. The crimes I perpetrated against you all was senseless, extremely harmful, and inexcusable. I humbly beg your forgiveness and pray you find peace, healing, and closure you all deserve, end quote. Now, there is more to that statement, and I posted the full thing to my Instagram account at Campus Crime Podcast, but I'm not going to recite the whole thing here. So if you want to see what all of that statement said, go check it out on my Instagram. So, Moving on with the story, according to the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, Williams was officially pronounced dead 13 minutes after his execution began at 10.52 p.m. As soon as the first sedative was administered, the midazolam, Williams began speaking in tongues. Then at 10.53 p.m., a minute into the execution, Williams switched to English as the sedative immediately began to take effect. His last words were, quote, the final words that I speak will forever be, will forever be, end quote. Then his speech trailed off and became unintelligible as he became heavily sedated. Three minutes into it, his body lurched 15 times in a quick succession. Then his body lurched five more times at a slower pace. Up until this point, he had been breathing heavily through his nose, but after his 20th lurch, he opened his mouth and began attempting to breathe through his mouth. A media witness, Kelly Kissel, with the Associated Press, said it was clear he was trying to draw in oxygen. However, he did still appear to be unconscious the whole time because the whole lurching situation lasted a total of maybe 20 seconds. By this time, the clock marked 10.56 p.m., and for the next three minutes, Williams continued breathing heavily through his mouth, but again, still unconscious. Another media witness described Williams as coughing, convulsing, lurching, and jerking with audible sound, like a moan. 
At 10.57 p.m. then, an attendant checked Williams for consciousness, and at 10.59 p.m., his breathing stopped. He was still for the rest of the execution. At 11.03 p.m., the attendant checked his vitals and summoned a coroner. Then, at 11.05 p.m., the coroner declared Williams dead. Though witnesses described the execution as possibly botched, Arkansas Governor Hutchinson declared Williams's, as well as the other three executions that occurred that month, as, quote, lawless, end quote. In a press conference the next day, NBC News reported that Governor Hutchinson said, quote, the executions were carried out in accordance with those protocols in the four. There was not any indication of pain, which was an objective and concern that had been expressed by the defense lawyers. I see no reason for any investigation other than the routine that is done after every execution, end quote. Also, a spokesperson for the governor's office, J.R. Davis, referred to Williams's shaking and lurching as well as the audible sound coming from Williams's body as, quote, involuntary muscular reaction, end quote. I mean, I'm no expert, but I kind of want to just chalk it up to an involuntary reaction to the sedatives as well. I mean, to me, it makes sense. And to be honest, I'm on the same page as Cecil Bourne's daughter, Jody Efford, who witnessed Williams's execution and said, quote, any amount of movement he might have had was far less than any of his victims, end quote. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 12. I told you it was a doozy of a story, and now maybe you know why I titled it, And Some More Murders. The more I researched this, it just kept going on and on, and I was like, when does this story end? But yeah, so that was a doozy. But as always, I hope you guys are truly enjoying it. And please feel free to leave me a review or comment on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm loving bringing you these stories every couple weeks, but as much as I love telling them, I'd love some feedback from my listeners even more, especially because thanks to the amazing Mama Margo on Military Murder Podcast, I have so many more listeners now, which I seriously just want to give you all a huge Thank you and a big hug, by the way, because y'all are awesome. So thank you. But yeah, leave me a review and tell me how I'm doing. Okay, bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.